Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Ramsey Alvin. She's the president and CEO of the National Council on Aging. A seasoned thought leader and policy advocate, Alvin has changed the way people think about older adult poverty and economic security. Prior to leading NCOA, Alvin directed financial resilience, global thought leadership at AARP. She led joint ventures with the World Economic Forum and Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Prior to AARP, she served as vice president President of Economic Security at NCOA, Director of National Economic Security Programs at Wider Opportunities for Women, Director of Program Services at the National Association of State and Community Services Programs. Currently, Alvin serves as the Executive Committee of the UN NGO Committee on Aging, the America 250 Health and Wellness Advisory Council, and the National Academy of Social Insurance Finance Committee. Alvin holds a BA from Simmons University and a Master's degree from the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Hi, Ramsey. Welcome to Women to Women podcast series. We're so excited to have you with us here today. Well, thanks so much for having me. So your story is so interesting. You grew up in Maine. So let's talk a little bit about that. I just, I had a magical experience growing up in a small fishing village in Maine. My father was a lobster fisherman and my mother a waitress. And I really got to enjoy all the magic of living by the ocean. But it was also an interesting experience to really see how there were two sides of town. There was the waterfront properties and the affluent that got to enjoy them. And then those that worked to make the town run where we lived, the fishermen, the waitresses, the various service providers that ensured that the tourist town could meet the needs of all of its affluent visitors. So at an early age, I really saw that difference between the haves and the have-nots. What kind of profession did you start thinking about when you were in you know, middle school, high school? What were you looking to be? Early on, I knew that the path of standing on my feet all day, whether it be on a fishing boat or at a restaurant, really wasn't for me and I needed to find an alternative. And so as I thought about college and research scholarships and looked at the jobs I was familiar with around me, I thought going to school to become a teacher would be my way to ensure I could pay off those student loans, I would be guaranteed a job, and I would be able to do something that would really make a difference. And so as I worked to get myself on a track to go to college, that's what I always had in mind to become a teacher. So clearly you're not a teacher today. Something changed along the way. So what happened? So I went to an all-women's college in Boston and uh, I explored the various options, getting an opportunity to teach in the classroom in Boston public schools. It was amazing to experience just the joy and the challenges of trying to teach middle school and high school students social studies and history when they were grappling with real challenges in their communities, in their homes. And I saw very quickly that often the students, they needed more than a teacher. They need a social worker. They needed an advocate, a policy change maker. And uh, as much as I loved and enjoyed that special time with the students, I began to recognize that the challenges that made it difficult for them to learn and focus in the classroom went well beyond what I was going to be able to provide as a teacher. And so I actually took an opportunity to explore a Washington semester program down here in DC at American University, where I took some criminal law classes, but also had a chance to work at the National Alliance of Black School Educators, a nonprofit 
representing thousands of African-American leaders from Head Start programs to university programs, and really got to examine some of the policy levers that are so influential in terms of setting people's trajectory for life. Education means everything for opportunity and even ultimately lifespan. And what I saw quickly was this de facto segregation that was occurring because property taxes, a policy decision, are the major funders of public school systems. And where you have poor communities, there are fewer tax dollars going into those school systems, and you're just perpetuating that cycle of poverty. And so it was a big aha moment for me, the power of policy as a lever for change. And it was also, frankly, a really incredible opportunity for me to flip the script a little bit. I was the only white person working at the National Alliance. I was the only white person at the convenings of thousands of African-American professionals in the field of education. And that was an important experience for me to sort of understand what this deep, deep institutionalized racism and attitudinal racism has meant and continues to mean today. And really getting a taste for the social injustices and a hunger for contributing to change. You also mentioned um, a mentorship program that really helped you pave this path to where you are today. So who was that mentor and how did that come about? Well, it was a program at the university I went to that had a formal opportunity for students to be partnered with an alum of the university. And I was fortunate to, at that point, have a sense of policy and be interested in policy. And I was partnered with Carol Waller Pope, the former head of the Federal Labor Relations Board. Uh, She was the first African-American woman appointed to the Federal Labor Relations Board and ended up serving as chair of the board. Well, she took me under her wings and really helped me understand the vast opportunity here in DC, federal agencies, nonprofits, advocates, um, the different roles, the different sectors all in play when it comes to influencing policy, a world I had no line of sight into growing up in a small fishing town in Maine. But once my horizons were broadened, thanks to Carol, I saw that there was a world of additional opportunity beyond just the vocation of, say, becoming a teacher. Important vocation, work of saints, and I still uh, have fond memories of being in the classroom. But I recognized there were many other opportunities that I never could have fathomed. Uh, It's sort of that whole, you don't know what you don't know. Understanding that made me step back and think about, maybe I don't need to know what my path is. Maybe I can just follow new adventures and try and experiment. And lo and behold, here I am in this amazing opportunity as CEO of the National Council on Aging, something I never would have imagined possible back freshman or sophomore year of college. Anybody else who really helped you shape your life? I've been fortunate. A lot of great mentors over my lifetime, both professionally and personally, always really working to build that kitchen cabinet of support around me. Often I've focused on those that are more seasoned, that have had more experience just to really learn from their wisdom and understand what got them on their path. I had early uh, mentors in the nonprofit world, in the advocacy world that helped me understand that really life is what you make it. And so the more you invest, the more you explore, the more curiosity that you exercise, the more you'll get out of the experience. But as I started to mature in my own career, what I recognized is I also need to look at the next generation, the up and coming generation and 
look for mentoring, mutually beneficial mentoring in that direction. I'm always sort of looking to the future of those that are in the position I aspire to be in, but also there's a lot of value in looking to the next generation of leaders that are forging a brand new path of what leadership means. And so more recently, I've tried to be a bit intentional about cultivating that next generation and enjoying sort of the mutual benefits of that mentorship. And thank you. This this interview is a huge step in that direction too, because most of our audience are young women. Somebody aspiring to be you, what would you advise them? You know, looking back at your specific skill sets, any kind of special education? Sure. Well, I do think having an openness to exploring all the possibilities and taking the opportunity to listen and learn and recognize you don't know what you don't know. So be open to new and different experiences and you never know where you'll find that new path. I was just talking with one of my daughters recently. She's learning about Sudan and South Sudan. And it had me reflecting on an experience I had when I was in college. And I decided I wanted to participate in a tutoring program to help first generation college bound students. One of the students that I helped was this young South Sudanese girl who had been a refugee. She'd come over in her early teens after walking through countries in just incredible heat with limited resources uh, to get to refugee camps and to finally make her way to Boston, Massachusetts, and to enter Boston Public School. And the perseverance of her wanting to get up to speed to learn English, her curiosity uh, around learning history and different math techniques, because she wanted to go to college. And at that point, in my early professional career, I thought if she can do this, I have no excuse. And so just keeping that sense of perspective, I shared that recently with one of my daughters to just remind them all the privilege, all the opportunity you have, it is your obligation to make the most of that because others don't have as much. So take the time to make the most of it. Look for lessons everywhere. And it's always about relationships. You have to treat people with kindness and respect. You never know who someone is, where they'll end up. And um, I'm a real believer in the golden rule. You treat people the way you want to be treated. And ultimately, you'll get that back in spades. You have a daughter. You actually have two daughters, correct? You have had a demanding job getting to where you are. How did you manage that time when you had like a young family and you had all of these other responsibilities and you want to do more, you want to take on more, but then there's this constant struggle most women have, you know, how do you prioritize and what else can you do to make it work? What was your mantra during that time? Well, I'll say it's always work in progress. So I have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old daughter, and we're always working to do better. We try to keep those lines of communication open so that everybody gets their needs met. And I don't think there's any perfect work-life freedom balance out there. But what I try to do is lead by example and show my daughters sort of what it means to be a mom, but also work in a way that satisfies you, provides meaning and purpose. And for me, that's making the world a better place, a real advocate for social justice in all of its forms. And I feel like as long as they see me being happy, satisfied, meaning and purpose and being curious, that will give them the tools because we don't know what their future holds. We, the future of work is evolving before our eyes as a result of this pandemic and what the future opportunities are for them, the types of jobs, the number of career changes. I just, I can't even imagine what it's gonna look like, but what they will need to be resilient is confidence, 
flexibility, curiosity, persistence. And those are things I think we can model. And so when they were younger until today, I try to illustrate that. So for instance, I went back to school in my early 40s. And that was when I felt it was the right time for me to go back to school. That mentor, Carol Waller Pope, had told me early on, she said, you know, go out and see what the world has to offer, build your Rolodex, build your experience, and go back and get a graduate education when you can really maximize that Rolodex of contacts, that life of experience. And that happened to work for me. I was fortunate enough to be elevated and promoted over the years. And when I finally was ready to go back to school, to the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown, at that point, I had two young daughters and was working full time. And my daughter saw mommy had homework, mommy had class presentations, mommy had a graduation. And uh, I was just really proud for them to see that because it just really demonstrated in real time that it's about lifelong learning, you're never done. And things can be challenging no matter your age, but you have to be persistent and stick with it. And ultimately, it will reward you. And so those were unique experiences for us, but I hope I've set them up for recognizing that they too will have to pursue a lifelong learning agenda. So networking and all of this, how does that play out and how, how do you think it's important for all of us at every stage of our lives? Well, I think the power of networks are just so very important and the research and the data illustrated as well. Those deep, close ties of relationships we have can help us, but also the power of weak ties, the vast, diverse networks that we cultivate are so important to help us through life transitions. It might be a career change. It might be a relocation to a new state or a new community. It might be a change in marital status, just a a new hobby. When you have a friend of a friend that knows a friend that somehow has an expertise or a connection or an experience that they can bring to bear, then you can have a partner to navigate that transition. And so I try to really work to cultivate and to nurture those relationships and those connections, because I really believe they are a part of shoring up our resilience. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, pandemic, global warming, but when we have relationships, when we have social connectedness, then we can experience these things together and we can share, we can learn, we can empathize. And that always makes it easier, no matter how challenging it is. You were the only white person in many of these meetings. Do you ever face certain kind of perceptions that like, what What is she doing here? Well, the National Alliance of Black School Educators was so incredibly welcoming. And and I think they found it kind of novel that I joined the team and I spent a semester there as a part of my Washington semester program, but it was such a great experience. And I just was so passionate about the work. They actually invited me to come return when I permanently relocated to DC and issued me an invitation to work for them as long as I wanted while I was pursuing a permanent job opportunity. So it was such a welcoming experience. However, it was it was eye opening to understand that there were different cultural nuances, language, food, historical references that growing up in a very homogeneous community, I just wasn't attuned to. It gave me an opportunity to really reflect on my experience and my privilege and how much I just didn't know or appreciate about the experiences of others. And that cultivated a curiosity. It definitely got me interested in learning and researching and trying to have 
more of an open mind, be in listen mode when it comes to different cultures, different experiences. I think I've been very privileged over my professional and personal life in that generally I've been a part of the majority. And so that was a very unique experience for me. There is so many different aspects to people, their cultures. How does mobility really help somebody grow personally as well as professionally? Well, I think in terms of just socioeconomic mobility, what I experienced being in a town of the haves and have-nots was a lot of prejudice in their negative stereotypes in terms of my my class and status. So I literally had a teacher in high school that told me that based on um, my aspirations to become a professional, a a white-collar worker, that that wouldn't be possible. That uh, when you look at the research, when you look at the data, families don't climb the career ladder one generation at a time, that it takes multiple generations to move from one socioeconomic strata to another. That was a very uh, tough blow to hear early in those formative years that somehow I would be relegated to my class and status in perpetuity and that that was beyond my control. And I have to say that teacher left quite an impression. And sometimes it's the great teachers that make an impression. Sometimes it's the teachers that inadvertently just sort of spark something in you, a fire in your belly that says, oh, I am going to prove you wrong. (laughs) And that too can be really effective. And so that was an experience that I had early on. And it also sort of stoked the fire in me of economic justice, socioeconomic challenges, and how it's not right for individuals to be relegated to a certain life just because they were born in a certain zip code or the color of their skin or their gender. Uh, And that continues to fuel my passion to ensure equity equity and aging at the National Council on Aging, because we really do look at sort of that cumulative disadvantage people experience over a lifetime and how that compounds and people age into poverty. But I've looked at the full lifespan. I've looked at issues and worked on policy issues with children, with families, with women, and now old age, because I do think that that's sort of the the most immoral, unjust of it all, that one would age into poverty and health economic insecurity. But you prove her wrong. Speaking about women, are there certain traits that you see on an everyday basis, you know, that I think women can really improve upon to get more from their lives, from their careers? Absolutely. I I had an early mentor, Tim Warfield. He was a boss when I was at the National Association for State Community Services Programs. And he taught me very early on, if you get what you ask for, you don't ask for enough. And it was a powerful exercise. And I think this rings true for women in many regards that often we're timid about asking for what we want in life. Uh, We're shy, we're timid, we don't want to be judged, we don't want to be rejected. And Tim unlocked something for me when he said, if you get what you asked for, you didn't ask for enough. And the context of this was was a salary negotiation where he made me go through the whole stressful process and made me come in and ask for a salary. And his point was, Ramsey, you have to shoot for the moon. You have to go big and go bold. And when they say, we're not going to give you that number, 
and you begin to negotiate, it's not a failure. It's not a rejection. It's not a vote of no confidence. It's your chance to negotiate and land on a number and know that you got every cent you deserved. You didn't leave anything on the table. If you had gotten the number you asked for, they probably thought you were going to ask for more. Or maybe they thought you were worth more, but they're not just going to give it up. You have to demand it. You have to be willing to negotiate. And I think as women, when it comes to our career or our professional life, just getting comfortable with the fact that a no or having to negotiate isn't somehow a demerit. It's an exercise. It's a game. And it's okay to play the game. That's my greatest advice. But I think also generally as women, just telling our own story, tooting our own horn. It's really important to position ourselves for opportunities and not to be so shy or so timid or so humble. We can be humble, but we can also tell our story and celebrate our success. And do you think there are certain mistakes we make personal or career-wise? Well, I think that we often do think that we must do it all and do it on our own and not ask for help. I'll tell you, I couldn't do it without the help of my friends, my family, having friends and family to help with kid care or when I'm studying or help me with a new introduction or relationship that can help get me access to new and different ideas and opportunities. No one does it on their own. We should always think about all the people that can help us and not be shy, not be embarrassed, not reinforce the stigma, but be open to the fact that it literally does take a village and that's okay. The idea that we can grin and bear it, do it on our own, just sort of silently suffer, I think is an antiquated concept. And now I'm not a proponent of, of sort of putting all the details out there for the world to see. Some are important to keep a little bit private, but I think sharing our challenges, our authentic self, and the help that allows us to be our best selves will only help others and new generations see it's okay that you don't have to do it alone. There's strength in asking for help. Anything that nobody knows about you? Well, I think I'm a bit of an open book, but um, something that I enjoyed a great deal when I was younger that few probably know other than those that... Um, that I danced with was I was a Scottish country dancer and I loved it. This was Sunday nights at our community center in Maine. We would gather and we would learn Scottish country dancing. It was kind of like square dancing a little bit with a Scottish flair to it. And I just loved the rhythm and they just relaxed pattern that you could just sort of let go and participate in the dance in a way that you just really were almost an outer body experience because you were enjoying the music, you were enjoying the dance and you didn't have to think about it. It's just so satisfying, relaxing and good exercise and a great sense of community. It was all women, all girls, and we would have just so much fun. And we actually went to some competitions in New England and tried to participate. We never, we never did all that well, but we had a lot of fun along the way. Do you get to do any of that now? I haven't danced with a formal troupe in a very long time, but I have tried to teach my girls here and there some of our hops and our kicks. And um, it just sort of brings joy to me dancing like that in such a fun way. It's amazing sort of something ingrained like that does for you when you can just sort of turn the music on and jump around and enjoy yourself. This was great. Ramsey, any closing comments for our listeners? Well, I just think that 
there are so many different opportunities in this world we're living in right now. There are new jobs and new career paths being created in real time and being open to just exploring all the possibilities and understanding it's not one path. We're all living this multi-stage, non-linear path that has these ebbs and these wanes of education and life learning, caregiving of young children in a family or elder parents, changes, whether it be relocation or marital status, getting married, getting divorced, getting remarried. What's so wonderful about living in this time is you can make that path whatever you want it to be. Whatever you thought you were going to do originally, if you're flexible, if you're curious, if you're resilient, the path can change and that can be and should be celebrated. So my advice really is to be open and just think, why not? Why not explore a new job? Why not go back to school? Why not relocate because really it's one life you have to live and you want to make sure those are the best years you and you don't have any regrets thank you so much for the excellent advice the very interesting experiences in your journey we really appreciate it thank you so much thank you it's been a pleasure